Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I'm here with Megan McCoy. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Dr. Megan McCoy started out as a family therapist, but now works as a faculty member at the Kansas State Financial Planning Program, where she teaches about the intersection between financial well-being and overall well-being. And I read an article that you were highlighted in in the New York Times and just thought it was fascinating. Financial therapy is a burgeoning sector. And that's kind of where I want to start. I read another, a series of articles that kind of talked about the genesis of this, call it subject matter. And it really started initially in 2008, but you've been doing this a long time. I'd love to hear your thoughts about what financial therapy was when you got into this space and then kind of what it's become up to this point. Oh, I love it. So in 2008, that timing is actually pretty uh, like knowledgeable to financial planners. It was not a great time. There was a whole bunch of mental health professionals who were like, my clients keep on bringing up money. I have no idea what to say to them. And a whole bunch of financial planners who were like, my clients are so emotionally distressed, grieving the loss of their homes, grieving all these monumental like financial trauma that I have no idea what to do. When financial therapy started, it was actually financial planners and mental health professionals in the room together. But the cost of that is just not sustainable for clients. Like two professionals at that level would get expenses. So in the last, what is 2008 to now, 
in the last couple of decades, we've been working on how do we do cross-train to allow people to kind of move up and down the spectrum where mental health is on one side and obviously financial planners don't want to be mental health professionals and uh, financial planning is on the other side and obviously mental health professionals don't want to be planners. So where on the spectrum is within our scope of competence? And I think some of the training programs like K-State has a great one, Georgia starting one, Tech is starting one. These training programs that are giving more tangible skills to financial planner are really evolving the field so quickly as we really do become, I don't know, more of a discipline that can really help people. So where does this stand today? Is it a certification that you receive? Yeah, right now it is a certification through the Financial Therapy Association. Kansas State's program is the only program that is right now recognized by the Financial Therapy Association, but that's going to be changing I often think about it is that it's such a small field that the designation is important in most fields to signal to our clients, I have this knowledge base, but it's so new that right now that what you know is more important than the letters after your name, that getting those skills, reading those articles, reading the books can allow you to become a thought leader in this area because it's so new and there's so much room at the table still to discover how can we best help clients how can we steal what we know about changing clients' behaviors from these other fields like mental health and apply it to financial planning? But it seems like the trend line, even before this is now part of the, the parlance, was your financial player was your therapist in many ways, right. right? Yeah. Oh man, there's a great article by Javosky and Sussman where they looked and they interviewed financial planners, not counselors, not therapists, financial planners. And 75% of them were saying that their clients were breaking down on a regular basis in their room. Like you're already dealing with counseling like incidents. And that's why financial therapy is one term, but client psychology, psychology, financial planning, all these other ones, I think they're all getting to the same thing. You are often the first call your client makes after a medical diagnosis, after their spouse passes away. You are this owner of tremendous trust and responsibility, even if you don't want it as <laughs> a financial planner. Yeah. So is that Lyle Sussman? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah I've had him on the show. He's oh, great. Lovely. Yeah, yeah. I love them both. They're he's terrific. Great yeah. So give us a sense of what the rubric or the coursework looks like to attain yeah. the certification, or if you're going through a program, if you're a financial planner listening, or if you're a client of somebody who has this destination, what does that work look like? Yeah. So at K-State, our program is interdisciplinary, but most of our students are financial planners. So they'll have their CFP core content, or they'll be doing that at the same time. Then they go into introduction to financial therapy, which are counseling-like skills. How do we listen better? How do we ask the right questions? How do we deal with resistant clients? How do we help them make small behavioral changes that have a lifelong, you know, ripple effect? Then you move into a class called Money and Relationships, where we talk about how is money talked about in your home? How does that shape your values, beliefs, and attitudes about money? How do you want to teach about it to your family, to your kids, your grandkids, or to your clients? How do you talk about it with your partner? We dig into some relational money disorders, like if you have clients who are maybe financially supporting adult children, when does it move into enabling versus scaffolding? What if you're keeping secrets from your partner? What kind of secrets is just privacy for you and which ones kind of fall into financial infidelity? We talk about financial abuse and manipulation, all those relational components so you can recognize and refer out if you need to. And then we go into behavioral finance. So how do you nudge your clients into doing the right thing? How can we understand these cognitive biases that come out in all different areas are functioning, how they apply to money behaviors? 
And then we end with financial theory and research. Because the field is so new, we want our students publishing. We want our students reading research. We want our students adding to the literature. And it's really cool. In just five years, we've had, I think, six articles published. Two of them won Best Paper Awards just from our master students digging into this stuff. There's so much left to write about. Yeah, that's awesome. And so where I was going to take the conversation next is what has the adoption been like within the mainstream? I know in my experience, larger family offices or RIAs now have embedded chief learning officers and they bring in financial therapists on an ad hoc basis, but it's much more accepted, right? It's in it's in the curriculum for the most part, but just the mainline everyday financial advisor, probably not so. Is that correct? Yeah. So I, it was funny because when I first started referring to financial therapy, everyone I talked to was like, I'm so glad you do it, but I don't want anything to do with it. That's how it started, right? But now that conversation, that discourse has really shifted. I think part of it is that the CFP board created learning objectives that are focused on client psychology. So now all financial planning programs are going to be required to teach client psychology in their financial planning programs. The questions are going to be in the exam. And that's leading to a much more speed up acceptance of this. The Financial Planning Association just partnered with Brad Klontz and Charles Chafin to create a designation that is very, very much focused on financial therapy. And so I think it's growing in popularity. But really to steal George Kinder's line, like I think financial therapy and all these similar fields are really just the next wave of financial planning. It is how we foster trust and commitment in our clients, how we help them actually discover and then meet their needs. I think it's the evolution of financial planning due to robo-advising. And sorry to ramble, but we did a, a replication study for the Financial Planning Association, a study that was done in 2007, asked clients, what is important to you to foster trust and commitment? And all these clients reported that their planners were great at communicating, great at listening, that they were so satisfied with them. And then we redid the study this year, and now the clients have higher expectations. They want you to be able to be that listening place, that they're pseudo-therapists. They want you to be someone that can communicate to them on more than just numbers. Their expectations are tremendously higher than they were just back in 2007. And so I think it's going to become more and more abundantly clear that financial therapy or some similar term needs to be the norm in financial planning, not the niche. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a robo-advisor expert on the show recently, and you can see this trend line happening, right? Where as the clients become more savvy and cautious about fees, the investment side actually becomes much simpler for a lot of people, (laughs) right? I mean, they say, hey, just put me into a bunch of really cheap ETFs, but I want more holistic wealth planning relationships with my advisor, right? So somebody's going to understand the tax implications, the estate implications. And I can easily see this financial therapy piece sliding in really nicely to take up a lot of the space that used to be taken up by stock picking, which is really just going away. Yeah, I agree. So along those lines, like what is the, you've got this adoption. It seems like 2008 was when it started. I would assume during COVID, the idea of being open about mental health, mental wellness was much more accepted by many people. And now it's expected to have that type of relationship. What other trends are occurring with the industry? What do you see coming next as the space grows? 
Would it touch on that COVID and social media in general has made everybody much more, not everybody, has made a great majority, especially of younger people, very open about their mental health, but also their financial health. Like 10 years ago, you would never see some of the financial conversations that young people are having on social media. You would never have expected that because the money taboo was so much stronger back in the day. And so I think there is a recognition that we have to be more open about sharing resources and therefore we have to be a little bit more vulnerable about our past money mistakes or like what resources we need from others. So I definitely think that is very much in it. I'm also really excited about some of the research that Sonia Luter has had recently where she saw, she like looked at financial planning clients and realized their marital satisfaction was going up by meeting with the planner. I think that is going to be something that becomes more and more clear. Because so many people don't talk about money with their partner until something's on fire. That by providing a couple space to say, what are your dreams about money? What are your values around money? It's like fostering their intimacy by accident. So all these financial planners might be saving marriages without even realizing it. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's got to be one of the largest stressors within a relationship, I would think, far and away. And I want to keep touching on kind of the broader industry. What does it look like from a, you've got the certification, but is there, are there regulatory bodies involved? And I'm, I'm really going from a standpoint of if you're a client looking for a new financial advisor or in the market and you're seeing some of these certifications, it can be alphabet soup for a lot of people. It can be super challenging. So like what is considered best in class? Who is overseeing these? You mentioned certain schools are providing really good curriculum versus others. Yeah. How do you navigate this space as a client? Oh, it is difficult. I think being really clear about their background and training, there is a certification that the Financial Therapy Association is overseeing. They have worked with lawyers and have certain thresholds that people have to achieve to call themselves a certified financial therapist. That is one way to kind of screen, but it is a self-study program. So they're going to do more and more to heighten the threshold and make it more difficult for certain levels that clients can understand and differentiate different practitioners. I think it's much more important for clients to recognize what are their goals to seeing a, a financial practitioner. So if someone's calling themselves a financial therapist, do they have their CFP marks? Because that's still the gold standard in financial knowledge. Or are you going because you really have mental health distress and then do they have a mental health license? So I almost see financial therapy as the add-on to show that the, we understand the intersection. But if you're having mental health issues, there needs to be a license and a mental health degree, like a family therapist, social worker, or clinical psychologist. Or there has to be, if you're going in for a financial, there really has to be the CFP mark still. So- you're considered a fiduciary, though, under the certification. Is that right? Yes. So CFT requires a fee-only structure and fiduciary standards that are aligned with NAFA, uh, NAFA's language. Got it. So there are some ethical responsibilities associated with the designation. That's a positive thing. Yeah. And are there other, not red flags, but if you're if you're focused on this on the client side and you really want your financial advisor to have this skill set, like what are the questions to ask? What are some things that would worry you if they were to pop up? Yeah, I think continuing the fiduciary, if it, it is very sales-based, it might be, does not mean that they're not doing the best for their clients. It just might not be financial therapy as much. 
think other questions is how often are you going to meet with me? Like how long will we stay and kind of like the discovery setting of our relationship and then how much is it going to be just monitoring? I think the more invested you are in financial therapy, the more time is spent actually being quiet <laughs> and listening rather than here's my advice, here's how to get it done and let's get you going. Both are great. Both can have positive financial outcomes, but if you're really looking for like a financial therapy relationship, they're going to spend much more time trying to seek to understand before they're going to give you any uh, directives. And now to kind of the same question, maybe from the financial planner's perspective, if if somebody listening is within the financial advisory space, interested in learning more about this designation or this curriculum, where would you point them to for resources or different curriculums? my favorite resource, I, I am frugal, so I don't want to send people to education programs if they're paying out of pocket and they're not sure what's the best fit for them. So the Financial Therapy Association to become a, just a member, not to get the designation or name member, is really rather affordable. And every week they have like, like a co-mentoring group that meets on Zoom where they really talk about, this is what I'm learning. This is what I'm using with clients. This is what I'm doing next. This is how I'm marketing myself. I really think that informal setting is so powerful because it doesn't cost anything more than a yearly membership. And then you have a chance to say, okay, I really want to dig in to my self-exploration. So I'm going to get a case date because I'll get like breakout rooms and working one-on-one, or I really want to do the readings of my own. I want to do a self-study and I'm going to go to FTA and do the self-study because I know I'm like so into this knowledge that I can do it all by myself kind of thing. And so you can find the right educational path based on unbiased other people instead of you know, me who wants you to come to K-State. <laughs> and is it like being a therapist? Is it considered best practice for a financial therapist to go see their own therapist? Oh, yes. I really, really, really believe that when we experience what the client experiences that we get new empathy and we become better practitioners. So for instance, we made, I worked with some colleagues at University of Georgia and we made our students meet with a financial planner. And it was amazing. These financial planning students who were very savvy, who had taken years of coursework in financial planning, said that going and sitting in the Zoom waiting room for their financial planner was the scariest moment of their life, that they felt financially naked, that they felt vulnerable, that they were worried about being judged. And I was like, that is the most powerful experience to get to see what it's like, what you should respond to first, how to read their nonverbals, what a client actually needs. And you can't do that unless you've been a client yourself. Yeah, it's hugely powerful. And that's that's awesome that you you had them do that. It's probably, <laughs> it was a really good learning experience. So let's go into kind of more of the, how it's been for you being in this world. I mean, what are some of the common most common fact patterns that you bump up against. You mentioned kind of the spouse communication issue, the emotions around money, but maybe what are the other kind of two or three big ticket items that you typically focus on with client work? Yep. I think that boundaries around emerging adulthood's financial support is very interesting and a common problem that we're facing because COVID has created some extra hurdles for young people. And so there's a lot of parents who are having conflict about like, should we support about our, our child? Or one person thinks they sh- should support a child or in blended families that should I support my stepchild? My wife wants to, but I don't want to. I think that is an emerging issue of like, when is financial independence a requirement? I don't think many of us th- see 19-year-olds needing to be completely cut off anymore, where 50 years ago, that would have been the norm. 
but now it's getting blurry between like 23, 26, 28. When do you cut them off? And when is it providing financial support that is helping them reach their goals? And when are you just enabling them to not get on their own feet? And that language is kind of harsh, but there is a balance. I think that's a big one. I am very fascinated by financial infidelity because if you ask someone, have you ever lied to your partner about money or have you ever committed financial infidelity? They're like, no. But if you say like, you just said, don't tell daddy we went shopping or did you ever go get fast food at lunch and feel guilty about it? Or like these little moments of white lies or transgressions, then the rates are like 99% of us have been guilty at least once. And I think that is an avenue to understanding. Like maybe you have money shame. Maybe you don't have power in your relationship. Maybe you don't have assertiveness skills. Like the financial infidelity that financial planners are probably going to be the first to discover is going to be a huge opportunity for a couple to get stronger in so many different ways or a huge opportunity for pain. Some preliminary results have found financial infidelity as deleterious on relational satisfaction as actual physical infidelity. So it really is a crossroad. I'm kind of rambling. I'm going to let you step in. <laughs> no, no, that's that's helpful and, and interesting. And, you know, I can certainly speak from our own experience. I'm curious, do you recommend that spouses keep finances individually and separate or collective? So this this is what I say. I think financially speaking, pooling resources makes more sense pool your resources, you have more interest. Plus, like if you're like 65 and your partner spent too much money, it's not like you're going to kick them out of the house, right? Like you guys are going to eventually have, you know, to support one another. So I personally believe in pooling. Plus there's been a study that found that people are less likely to buy wasteful things if they pool their resources. So like little things, like they're less likely to buy that Starbucks for the third time a week that makes them more financially well off if they pool their resources. Now, I never ever would tell a couple they have to pool their resources because sometimes there are past experiences that creates a need for autonomy to make them feel safe. And that reminds me of the third big thing that I see as a big trend is the idea that like sometimes there's financial stress where crappy things are going on and you don't have enough money. But what I'm seeing a lot is financial anxiety where there's no external stimuli to show that you're not okay financially. But there's been so much what ifs the last couple of years, that ambiguity of like, when is the market going to crash? When is inflation going to end? That there's a, a rising level of financial anxiety with no external stimuli that I'm seeing. And so would I rather someone have separate accounts than financial anxiety? Yes. Even if there is a better way of doing it. Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com download. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're not going to turn this into an individual session on me, but yeah. I certainly have like experienced this you know, massive financial anxiety where I go into a tailspin of catastrophic thinking, even yeah. though like logically we're in a very good position and we're very prudent, but I cannot help but have my mind wander into these like disaster zones. It's yeah. very hard to deal with. And they're so tied together. So like, I just think, we are much better at one big crappy thing happening than lots 
of little pileup of stressors that don't have an ending. And we've been in five years of like perpetual, like <gasps> holding our breasts. And that is causing this globalized decrease in all of our ability to cope with stressors. And it makes that line to anxiety much easier to cross. Well, and so what are recommendations or, or things that you tell clients that are experienced this money-related generalized anxiety? Yeah, I think this sounds corny, but one of the things that is highly recommended with this is called the worry time. And it's like actually specifically sitting down and writing all your worries out, like something, if you don't like writing, you could like record yourself, but having a tangible like hour set aside to really dig into the catastrophic, go all the way to like the worst outcome and see what would actually be. Because sometimes negative emotions, I'm like a toxic, positive person. So I, I don't like negative emotions. I'd rather be happy or pretend to be happy at every second of the day. But when I do that too much and I stifle the worries or the bad thoughts I'm having, it just comes out harder and bigger in other ways. And so I think letting yourself go through it and saying, what would life look like if this catastrophic thing happened is really ironically helpful. I think talking about it with friends and family can be really, really powerful too, because I think other, like, I think it is way common right now. And I think Getting that, like, this is okay, this is normal feeling by talking about it can be really positive. And then other than that, it's just creating that plan that you probably have perfectly in place, but looking at that plan and saying, I have this in place, I'm going to be okay. And I know within kind of our investor community, which are mostly high net worth individuals and families, there is oftentimes a lot of shame associated with a certain amount of money. How do you manage through that and work through that particular emotion. Yeah. I always tell my undergrads when I first start teaching about the money taboo, the money is such a weird thing because if you have less than others, you feel jealousy, you feel like guilt, I should have done better with it. And if you have more than others, you're like, that feels gross. Like I have more than them. I have this privilege that it would have been. And so like money is one of the only topics that you have to have like very, very close numbers to each other. Like it's just a different thing. And so I think recognizing where that shame comes from is really important. Like what messages did you relieve or receive from your parents, from your church, from your social networks about money and how that plays into it. I love the work by Brad Klontzen and Ted Klontzen on the Klontz Money Script Inventory, but there's tons of little money belief inventories. What I like about it though, is every time I give it, I always have people email me like, I don't like this survey because no one would ever answer number three, four, and five that way. And I get other emails from somebody who was like, how could anybody answer three, four, five any other way? Like funny that like we are so ingrained because money is so not talked about to believe our money beliefs, our money fears, our money worries are the same as everyone else. And, and all of us are very, very different in how we see money. Yeah, it was interesting. I had a financial therapist on a few weeks ago, but she was based in London. Oh, and she was saying that the difference between her American clients and her English clients was so dramatic because her English clients, she had to work to get them just to even be open to talking, whereas the Americans felt much more comfortable opening up and being vulnerable right off the bat so they could get more work done sooner with them. So it is interesting culturally to think through America, such a capitalist society, but then we're so guarded when it comes to opening up about our own individual finances. Right. Like what money is part of like all our conversations. Like the first thing Americans like to ask them when they meet them is what do you do for a living? And that's not a common question in other parts of the world, but like that is top 
three questions we ask them when we meet them. And yet we don't want to share our own personal situation. And that's why also in America, something like 70% of people self-identify as middle class when the middle class is the smallest it's ever been. So there's all these people who are upper class considering themselves middle class. All these people who are lower class considering themselves middle class because that ideal of being middle class is so strongly ingrained in the American narrative. Yeah, it's funny. I'm from New York, but I married a Nashville native. And I, I tell people who move to Nashville all the time, listen, when, when somebody from here asks you what you think are like innocuous questions, like where do you live? Where do your kids go to school? What church do you go to? <laughs> These are like screening questions because there's only, there's only like maybe three or four right answers to those questions. And like, they're very quickly assessing whether you are within their, you know, Socio your socioeconomic group and like whether or not they're going to have a play date with your kids. Wow. Like, but it's totally what it is. Like these are very much like, oh, they're just being very nice Southern people. I'm like, no, 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 no. They're, they're <laughs> straight judging you within five minutes. So you, they're pretty much just figuring out how much is in your account right now. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, to your point, like these are the ways that we go about trying to figure it out without just straight asking people, hey, like, where do you fall within this line? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a crazy business. I, I want to talk about you know, in our world of family offices and multi-generational family businesses, how do you manage this handoff that's occurring between the <laughs> baby boomers and millennials? Because we've talked about this on the show a lot, like people talked about it forever. It's actually starting to occur now. How are you coaching if you have clients that are going through this process? How are you coaching them through this transition? Yeah, so I don't have clients in this specific thing, but I've talked to students of mine who are going through a similar thing. What's fascinating, and I think something we don't talk about, is that longevity has increased pretty steadily. But really what has increased in the last 20 years dramatically is this, I forget what they call it, but like the healthgevity, that a 60, 70-year-old person today may still live as long as their parents or grandparents did, but they're so much healthier at 60, 70 than their parents were at 60, 70. Like you ever look at those pictures of your parents at your exact age and be like, why do you look so much older? Like what is going on? And part of it is like our looks are different styles, data, but part of it is that we are getting healthier from all kinds of public health things. And I think the trade-off is getting harder because there's assumption you're 65, you should be done. Like you should get out of here and let me have it, where those 65-year-olds feel 45. They feel like, what is going to be my passion? What am I going to do when I wake up in the morning? Like the Japanese word for retirement is the reason I wake up in the morning. And ours is retire, like get into a cave and hide or whatever. And so like, what is the plan for that retirement cliff of like, what is going to be their new thing that fills their day that Mitch album, if you've heard it, like fill your agenda with how much golf you'll do and see how much time is left. And so I think that's part of the tension that's arising is they're not ready to retire. Maybe they don't need to retire. I also think that I went before financial therapy was a thing, before it was even something we talked about, there was a guy named Murray Bowen, who was a famous family therapist. And he worked specifically with family business succession planning as a therapist, because where is the line from boss? to dad. Like that blurred boundary creates communication tensions that is really hard to navigate when you're inside the blurred boundary. It's much easier to have a mediator. 
yeah, it's interesting to see, to your point, people are living so much longer now. And so you've got, if you are a multi-generational family, you may have four or five generations working alongside each other simultaneously for the first time ever in US in American or world history. And so it's really hard to navigate a Gen Z working with a, a baby boomer. And, you know, those generation cohorts, it, they do impact how you view the world, but you've got, we've got to figure this out. And so I actually had a generational kind of cohort advisor come on to the show. And it was fascinating to hear how he handles this with families. It's actually not that much different. It's just the, the words we use are much different. So as we round out the conversation, I want to talk about kids. There seems to be, as a millennial, Actually, the same consultant that I just referenced, had the biggest takeaway I had from the conversation was he said that every parent wants to give their child the childhood that they think they didn't have themselves. And so if you're a millennial listening to this and you're having challenges with the money talk with your children, <sighs> like what's best practices? What have you seen work really well? And maybe just as importantly, like what don't do these three things or four things. Yeah. My first piece of advice is give yourself grace. I teach a class called money and relationships. Like I should be good at this. But the other day, my eight-year-old asked me how much was in my bank account and all the blood rushed out of my face. Like I was like, how do I answer this question? How do I get to the nuances of different accounts and what this symbolizes and blah, 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 all this stuff. I gave this long-winded story and she was like, I just wanted to know if I could buy an LOL. And I was like, well, you can't no matter how much I have because I'm not giving you that money for no reason. But it was so funny because we ended up having these like multiple conversations where she kind of revisited certain things. I said, like, I don't know why you said whatever retirement account, blah, blah. And it provided opportunity to just keep on talking about it. So did I do it right? No, <laughs> I did everything wrong, but did I talk? Did I share? Did I say this is normal? That's what I've communicated was these conversations. You'll never know everything about money at once. And we can always talk about money. And that's all you need to know as millennial is that you're going to have 10 mess ups with your kids, but as long as you facilitate more mess ups, they'll be okay at the end. <laughs> so just being, creating a safe space for them to be able to come to you and talk about it yes. and then just figure it out from there. Everyone's going to be a little bit different. Yeah. And then like, I, I am a naturally anxious person too. And so if you start going into a topic that produces anxiety in you, saying something that says, you know, I really want to talk about this to you, but let's revisit it in a couple of days and let me look up some stuff or whatever you want to do. Because what we notice is that the emotional arousal they sense in you is going to be more important than the words you say. So if I'm feeling anxious and saying everything's okay, they sense that mashup, that conflict between how I'm presenting and what I'm saying. And so it's much better to say, I really want to talk to you about this. Let me get a day or two. Let me talk to you after soccer or whatever and find a way to calm down before you talk because they can tell your emotional state. Yeah. The other day, my six-year-old asked me how much money I made. <laughs> and he asked my wife the same thing. Then he asked how much it costs to send him to the school. And I was like, I don't feel comfortable telling you any of these things, but let's, I guess we can sit down and chat about it. Like, why are you asking me this question? Does something yes! happen at school or with your friends? Yeah. Yeah. Just like she wanted to just know if I would give her money. She didn't really care what the answer was. Having those conversations about like, are you worried about like, we're fine financially. Are you worried about me spending too much? Or do you not realize how important your education is? You know, those, what is the, the why they asked may be more important than the content. 
So this has been terrific. I want to thank you so much for coming on. I'm I'm curious, what are you doing in terms of your academic focus? Do you have some initiatives or some things that you're excited about that you want to tell the audience? Oh, I would love to tell you guys about a couple projects. Last year, the Financial Planning Association provided a group of us a grant to study financial planners and their clients. And we looked at all kinds of predictors of trust and commitment and we looked at financial anxiety. So our paper is coming out in the Journal of Financial Planning next month, looks at predictors of trust and commitment in financial planning clients. That one's going to be fantastic. And we're starting one now where we're looking at how financial anxiety mediates that relationship. Like, does it create more emphasis on certain communication skills than other? And what's really cool is that we were so lucky to also get a grant from the Financial Planning Association of Canada and we're going to do a similar survey. So we'll be do, able to do some cross-national comparisons about what helps with commitment trust, as well as what uh, financial anxiety levels look like in both of these countries. But Canada wants us to do a bigger, deeper dive into their fintech landscape, since there are a little bit less saturation in fintech in Canada than there is the U.S. And so we're going to look at what helps foster relationships in terms of fintech and which may kind of inhibit facilitating the relationship. So I'm excited about those projects. That's awesome. And and I wish you the best of luck. And I, I did check out some of the research you're doing, the articles. They're really great. So I want to thank you for all the work you're doing in this space. The question that I ask people that come on the show that I'd love to hear your response. Is there anything that you do in terms of daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? Oh, yes. So this sounds so lame, but I snooze emails, meaning if I see too much task in my inbox, then I get overwhelmed. If I don't have enough task in my inbox, I don't do enough. And so I have this like whole elaborate thing where I spend all morning, kind of not all morning, I spend an hour organizing my inbox. This is what I'm going to achieve Monday. This is what I'm going to achieve Tuesday. This is what I'm going to achieve Wednesday. And I keep everything very manageable. And then this is really corny. I don't know how old your children, I know you have a six-year-old, so hopefully you've seen it, but there is a movie called Frozen 2 that's for kids. And there's a song that I'm, called... I'm very familiar with Frozen 2. Yeah. <laughs> you know when she sings that song about just do the next right thing? So when I look at that inbox and I only have one to three emails left, I sing that song to myself. Just do the next right thing. Get one sentence on that project. And that's enough, Megan. And then once you do one sentence, usually you end up doing three or four sentences. So I sing that to myself. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Whatever, whatever it takes. Right. Um, well, Megan, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This has been terrific. If people are interested in connecting with you about the research you're doing, the work you're doing, or your your services you provide, what's yeah. the best way for them to get in touch? Yes, please find me on LinkedIn, Megan McCoy, and I can send you that link. And also, you're welcome to email me. My email is just Megan McCoy, all one word, at ksu.edu, which is K-State's little ending. <laughs> awesome. Well, Megan, I want to thank you so much look forward to staying in touch and hearing more about the work you're doing. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.